This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Guess where about a fifth of Coloradans get their health insurance? That's more than a million people. From Medicaid, which is also a big and growing chunk of the state budget. Well, a healthcare experiment on the West Slope shows it may be possible to lower costs and provide better care under Medicaid. Rocky Mountain Health Plan started this thing called Medicaid Prime back in 2014. Patrick Gordon is Associate Vice President in charge of the program, and welcome to the program. Great. Good morning. This operates in six counties, covers around 35,000 people. You got permission from state government basically to take responsibility for Medicaid in your area around Grand Junction to experiment. And I want to be clear, you're a big supporter of Medicaid, but you realized it wasn't really working. What wasn't working about it? Well, Medicaid is essential. It's a critical source of coverage in Colorado. And so finding ways to make it sustainable is a big part of what we're about. Um, Sustainability, that's though, right. is the critical question. Right, because it's such a big part of the state budget, right? So we realized that if we in Western Colorado at the community level could organize and focus on the types of services that help people be healthy in the long run, um, help people connect more efficiently with not just healthcare but other services in the community, uh, we stood a good chance of um, – of uh, achieving better health outcomes in the long run and and uh, a lower cost. Can you give me some examples of what that means? Well, there's a big focus on primary care, uh, and that's true across healthcare. But in our program, we wanted to really accelerate uh, making resources available to primary care because it's still the place where most people access the system. It's where most prescriptions are written. It's often the place where decades-long um, relationships are formed between patients and healthcare providers. And so putting primary care in a position to work more comprehensively and not just treat you when you're sick, uh, but to look at your health and overall well-being uh, is an important part of this puzzle. And this was about getting primary care to those who didn't have it. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. One big idea behind Medicaid Prime on the West Slope was to have a fixed budget mm -hmm. and kind of work within that, make it your dictator, if you will. Why was that important? Well, you know, uh, without that type of accountability, it's really hard to focus on the things that produce value. Instead, you focus a lot on where revenues are coming in or where costs are going out. But having a fixed budget creates accountability for everyone and brings everyone in the community to the table because it's basically a sink or swim proposition. Everybody to the table, including doctors and doctors, nurse practitioners. Doctors, community health clinics, nurse practitioners, hospitals. But do you want those people thinking of the bottom line? We want them. Th we want them thinking about the overall bottom line, mm -hmm. not just their own individual organizational bottom line. And more importantly, we want them thinking about value. Value. So, is what they're doing one improving health and two cost effective? Right, and that can be measured and that can be uh, demonstrated transparently. And so, this model really focuses on measurement, data use, and transparency. Okay. And instead of looking at, I don't know, could this patient get affordable knee surgery or a CAT scan or something, you also look at things outside the doctor's office that affects health. And I think you've hinted at that. Like what? 
Well, so much of health is dependent on behavior and an environment. And so, you know, we could perfect the healthcare system tomorrow, but really only affect 10% of future healthcare spending. Really? So what else do you look at? We look at, um, for example, behavioral health. So Mental health. Mental and behavioral health. So uh, whether a person is feeling depressed or anxious, whether there are steps that we can take in, in treating that patient uh, more comprehensively so that, uh, again, their overall sense of well-being is higher. They feel more empowered to take charge of their health. And in the long run, they make better decisions and use healthcare resources more wisely. So did that change the conversations that doctors in this Medicaid Prime experiment have had with their patients? Absolutely. So I think everyone can relate to the experience of going to the doctor's office and feeling rushed, feeling as though you had only 10 minutes, perhaps, to connect with your with your physician, maybe coming away feeling like you didn't get every question answered or having some other kind of undefined sense of dissatisfaction. The physicians feel that way, too. And so creating a different type of payment model that affords more time for people who need it um, and can be more proactive in working out working with patients outside the doctor's office um, is a big key to changing that dynamic. I see. So this is a bit of that changing the fee for service model. The idea that you are remunerated as a healthcare provider just for ordering tests or doing procedures. That's right. The fundamental economics of healthcare really crowd out the types of connection that most people want with their healthcare provider oftentimes. And so we need to change that if we want to get different results. And my understanding is this program, Medicaid Prime on the West Slope, has actually meant some doctor's offices have hired uh, behavioral health professionals to help them coordinate some of that more holistic care. Is that true? Absolutely. They themselves see the value of that clinically, and they've had the freedom and flexibility to make that change. Okay. A woman named Karen Renee Anderson is a patient in this system, and she said that being on Medicaid Prime helped her get surgery to relieve chronic back pain. And this was a surgery she tried to get for more than four years. When I contacted Rockland Health Plans and said I'm on Prime, I need some help finding the surgeon and getting it approved. They were ready to, to say, okay, if you're not going to be approved, we're going to figure out why you're not approved and help you get this approved. Now, she's not sure if being on Prime is what did it entirely, but that's her guess, because you have care coordinators and relationships with providers. And she says that even though she was on Medicaid before she enrolled in the Prime experiment, uh, being on Prime has brought down her out-of-pocket costs. So, drumroll please, to the big question, <laughs> has Prime brought down the overall costs of healthcare, and if so, by how much? The short answer is yes. Um, we look at that very carefully. Um, in the big picture, each year that the state has renewed this program, it's actually reduced our budget by about 4 to 7% at a time. And so uh, rather than increasing spending on the program, costs have come down. When we look more specifically at measures of performance, like how often does somebody who is discharged from the hospital get readmitted to the hospital? In Mesa County, over the course of 2016, we cut that rate in half. So we're spending less on high-cost health care and shifting resources to primary care and behavioral health where we can be more proactive. Because it's expensive to be re-hospitalized. 
Absolutely. Uh-huh. And your budget, you say, has shrunk mm-hmm. because you've been able to do more with less. Th- that is true even as Medicaid enrollment has climbed? Yeah, that's right. And to be fair, um, there's a lot that we don't know about the new populations that are covered under Medicaid, but there's a huge opportunity to get our arms around those populations and, and understand their needs. So having a system like this, again, allows us to be more proactive. Okay. So can you put a dollar amount or a percentage on this for me? Well, uh, one one way to measure it is that the state, uh, as I mentioned, has reduced the budget by about 4% and, again, another 7% uh, each year that the program has renewed. Mm-hmm. Another is that we were able to return uh, some of the savings we created to the community. And so last year, we were able to hang on to a portion of what we saved and return it uh, to primary care and behavioral health. And that payment was about $5 million. About $5 million yep. towards those other aspects of health care that aren't necessarily about walking into the office. That's right. That's right. We can be more proactive and build a, a whole person system as opposed to just responding uh, when somebody is sick. How do doctors feel about this change? It's a huge change. Yeah. It's been a big change. Uh, fortunately, we've got great uh, leadership in the Western Slope, and that's lighted the way. But going from a, a volume-based system to one like this uh, requires a, a leap of faith. And have some doctors been unwilling to make it? Yes, uh, I think some have struggled. Um, generally speaking, everybody's gotten on board, um, and we've been able to show that it's working financially for primary care. But it's a huge, huge change. And, um, you know, it's not the kind of thing that will occur overnight. Because there has been inherent benefit, at least for some, in the fee-for-service model, hasn't there? Well, volume is rewarded. Uh Um, But volume has a cost. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And you may know that Medicaid is a big and growing portion of the state's budget. This is often talked about in political circles as the future of Medicaid is debated. And we are focusing on an experiment on the Western Slope called Medicaid Prime, which uh, its organizers have said brings down the cost of Medicaid care. And this is the critical question as well. Does it improve care? Are people healthier because of this? Do you have measures? Yeah, we we do have measures. And that's a big component in all of this is not just showing that you save costs, but that, again, you've improved health. Um, so those readmissions were down. That was re- one side. Readmissions. Uh, we have measures of how well uh, people with diabetes uh, are managed. And uh, we've met or exceeded the targets set by the state. We have uh, measures that get at depression uh, management and obesity. And we've met or exceeded those targets. We also have a measure called the patient activation measure, which creates an understanding of how well a person feels that they're able to take care of themselves, how confident they are in their own um, um, ability to uh, you know, think ahead and, and, and plan for their future. And, and we're collecting that data and, and hitting our targets there as well. So I want to say that Rocky Mountain Health Plans uh, did acknowledge that it was having serious financial problems because after years of being a nonprofit, it's going to be acquired by United Healthcare. It cut coverage for people on private insurance, not prime, in several counties, just for the full context here. And Rocky Mountain Health Plans is key in administering 
Medicaid Prime. I want to say that this this change on the West Slope did not happen overnight. It was really more organic because a lot of these counties had already had a collaborative health system in place that had gone on much longer. It got national attention almost a decade ago for lowering costs in Medicare by being collaborative. And that's, of course, the federal health insurance program for older Americans. Uh, while Congress worked on the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, President Obama visited Grand Junction. I know there's some skepticism. Well, how, how are you going to uh, save money in the health care system? You're doing it here in Grand Junction. You know, you know, you know that lowering costs is possible if you put in place smarter incentives. If you think about how to treat people, not just illnesses. If you look at problems facing not just one hospital or physician, but the many system-wide problems that are shared. That's what the medical community in this city did. And now you're getting better results while wasting less money. Here's another question about results. Has this made Medicaid less partisan on the West Slope, do you think? No, uh, it's hard to answer that question. Um, But the reality is that when you try to apply something like ideology to healthcare, it doesn't really get you very far. So I think what's interesting about Western Colorado, but not exclusive to Western Colorado, is that a community can collaborate. And I always remind folks that the word labor is present in the word collaborate, meaning meaning that you're not just getting together to talk about a nice idea. You're getting together to work and in some cases to give something up. So is this a model potentially for Medicaid elsewhere in the country or nationwide? A critical question as Congress decides what the future of healthcare looks like. I think so very much. Uh, I think this is a model for urban areas, for rural areas. I think this is a model for any state. And in fact, I think it is precisely this kind of model that's going to make uh, coverage expansions work in the long run. Do you have some sense that Washington is aware of it? Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Yeah. Okay. I, I think I think that um, there are several of these types of pilots going on around the country. It's a question: Can we actually accelerate what we learn from them and create more of a complete policy, as opposed to a patchwork of pilots? Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. That is Patrick Gordon, Associate Vice President of Rocky Mountain Health Plans. It covers communities on the West Slope. And we talked about this Colorado experiment called Medicaid Prime. Indeed, Republicans in Congress will try to bring down the costs of Medicaid nationwide in the next iteration of health care reform. But at some rural hospitals in Colorado, there's anxiety because they say the Affordable Care Act has helped keep them afloat. So the Republican replacement could have a big impact on the rural counties that helped elect Donald Trump. Here is CPR health reporter John Daly. Thank you all for coming today. Rural hospital leaders came together recently to deliver a dire warning. They call themselves the canaries in the coal mine. Many of their facilities are already facing a financial crisis. Connie Martin is one of them. She's CEO of San Luis Valley Health in Alamosa. It provides 670 jobs and is the region's largest employer. We are the only hospital in the six-county region that delivers babies and the only hospital that does any specialty or surgical services. She says the hospital has benefited financially from the expansion of insurance coverage under the ACA. But it operates on a thin margin that could be upended 
if a replacement doesn't address their financial challenges. The hospital being the largest employer, the largest annual budget, if we become unstable through this period of uncertainty, you know, it could destabilize our, our entire local community. Four hours away in Colorado's rugged high country is the Delta County Memorial Hospital. CEO Jason Kleckler has a similar story. His hospital is the county's largest employer with 615 workers. He's not sure what's coming down the pike next as Republicans look to rework the ACA. It brings up a lot of uncertainty. And I think that that's the core of what keeps me up at night in regards to health care reform. Both rural hospitals are on a list of eight the Colorado Hospital Association says are in critical condition, in danger of closing. We're very concerned. At the national level, the numbers are even more alarming. Brock Slaybaugh is with the National Rural Health Association. His group has identified 670 hospitals nationally that are at risk of going under. That's a third of all the nation's rural hospitals. They provide the employment for many of the physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants that work in these communities. And once these hospitals leave the community, they're not going to be coming back. On Colorado's at-risk list is Lincoln County Hospital and Care Center on the Eastern Plains. It's in Hugo, a sparsely populated farming and ranching town in a county where 78 percent of the residents voted for Donald Trump. There isn't another hospital for 75 miles, which makes this facility critical for people in several counties. That includes Julie Kuntz. She's mayor of nearby Lyman. I think it's a huge driver in keeping us all going and enticing people to move out here and live here. We need to provide these services. Healthcare is one of the top three job creators in rural Colorado. In Hugo, it means 175 jobs. They're generally good-paying and contribute more than $8 million to the local economy. Kuntz says if the hospital closed, it would be a devastating blow. It would be a huge impact, and not just for this community, but for the entire region out here. Hugo's Hospital is a 15-bed critical access facility, along with a long-term care and assisted living center, and three primary care clinics. CEO Kevin Stansbury says its budget is about $20 million. This year we'll break even, and we're thrilled about breaking even. But that's not any way to survive. Medicaid expansion helped many hospitals because more people have insurance. Before the ACA, care for those patients was uncompensated. But Stansbury says many patients who got private insurance were swamped by high premiums and deductibles. So they might as well be uninsured. They've got insurance for the real catastrophic stuff, but they're not able to take care of the things that happen on a day-to-day basis because it's all out-of-pocket expense. He says when patients can't pay for their care, the hospital assumes those costs. Recently released congressional plans would remove the Medicaid expansion some hospitals have relied on. States would need to make up for some of the federal funding if they wanted to retain the expanded coverage. Stansbury says whatever plan emerges, rural hospitals need steady funding. Without that predictable support, it's tough to plan for the future. Because then you're just scrambling to keep the doors open day to day. Kevin Stansbury says that's a daunting proposition no matter what comes next in a post-ACA world. I'm John Daly, CPR News. It's 
Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Right before the inauguration, a poll showed the nation to be deeply divided. The Pew Research Center found 86 percent of the public thinks the country is more politically divided today than in the past. So how does that change? It's the central question in The Reunited States of America by Boulder author Mark Gerzon. He's a professional mediator who has worked to resolve disputes in Congress, at the United Nations, and in developing countries. We spoke in January. And welcome to the program. Great to be with you this morning. Thank you. You ask a really important question, though, in this book. Is the country so divided, or is it just that the two parties are? How did you come to answer that question? Well, I think people are divided naturally across a spectrum of beliefs. But when you have two microphones in the room, and one is way over on the left, and the other microphone is way over on the right, and then you say to everybody in the room, hey, let us know what you think. Everybody has to go way over to the left to talk or way over to the right to talk. And I think, you know, symbolically, that's what's happening in our culture now, that we are basically forcing a really rich mosaic of opinions and beliefs. We're forcing them into a red box or a blue box. And then we're pitting the red box and the blue box against each other uh, as if it was some kind of, you know, World Wrestling Federation kind of, you know, uh, championship. I think what struck me about your thesis here is that changing that won't necessarily start in Washington, D.C., but that it's something that we're all responsible for. Um, Do you think that's a, a correct framing, Mark? I do. Uh, The subtitle, you know, is that how we can bridge the partisan divide. The we is the American people, because I think it's going to start with us. We're not hired to be Democrats and Republicans. You know, our politicians are. Uh, They get to Washington and they're meeting now in Congress as, you know, the red team and the blue team. But you and I, um, citizens, the people listening to this show, we're not hired to be red or blue. We can be any technicolor truth that we truly are. And that's what I believe, is if every citizen was true to who they truly are, uh, we'd have a mosaic of opinion and there'd be a lot of common ground. There'd be some, you know, severe disagreements on some issues and there'd be some breakthroughs on common ground on others. Um, When I worked with Congress, uh, I was struck by the fact that, you know, it was the beginning of the period when they said, let's oppose whatever the other side does. That was the beginning. And it's gone on for 20 years that whatever the other side does will oppose. That's not leadership. You know, that's just knee-jerk reactivity. And yet the systems in place to keep this true, that is, the two-party system, for instance, uh, how campaigns are run and how they're funded, all of those are deeply entrenched and very hard to change. So is there some, I don't know, in this a a Pollyanna uh, view of how the country operates? No, I'm not... Pollyannish at all. In fact, um, when I worked with Congress, I got an up-close look at the dysfunction, and it's gotten only worse since the years that I worked on Capitol Hill. I worked on for four years on Capitol Hill, so I'm not Pollyannish at all about Capitol Hill. I think what I have a positive outlook about, and it is a positive outlook, is about the American people, because all across this country, um, you know, I profile 40 organizations in my book that are building bridges across the divide. They're in Kansas City, they're in Tallahassee, they're in Colorado. Um, They're literally all over the country. And they're doing inspiring work on almost every issue. The problem is that 
they don't get any attention. So most Americans, they know all about, you know, Donald Trump's hair and Hillary Clinton's emails, but they don't know about, you know, what No Labels is doing. They don't know what the Village Square is doing in Tallahassee. Uh, they don't know what the National Institute for Civil Discourse is doing. They don't know that in 25 legislatures, state legislatures around the country, there's red and blue groups meeting for dialogue and learning to know each other and work together. This is simply not known to the American people. And I think it's not Pollyannish at all to say this is what is actually happening and to shine a spotlight on it. That's not Pollyannish. I would call that patriotism, actually. Tell us about No Labels and some of the work it's doing. Well, No Labels is a Washington-based group that has gotten 90 members of Congress on the right and the left to be part of a problem-solving caucus. And we'll see what they do. We'll see how serious they are. But the idea behind it is, hey, let's work together on things that we care about set some long-term goals for our country and work together on it. And they're swimming upstream because the you know party leaders there want to pull the two parties apart. But the No Labels is doing a pretty heroic job, and I, I'm impressed with their effort to do it. But it, by itself, it won't accomplish anything. It needs the American people to be paying attention. And I'd say still only one out of 100 Americans know that No Labels exists. So it has some work to do. I want to say that your book came out before Trump's victory, and I wonder if he changes the whole equation. For better or for worse. I do think of the tweet that he sent on the last day of 2016, though. Happy New Year to all, including to my many enemies and those who have fought me and lost so badly they just don't know what to do. Love. <laughs> well, what does that right. tell you about, about the desire at the top to bridge the partisan divide? Well, I'm not optimistic about the top. Um, I think the top is going to play the polarized game because that's the only game it knows how to play. But I do think on every other level, from state legislatures on down, there are some chances for us to break new ground. And every state, such as Colorado, is a laboratory of democracy. That's the way the Founding Fathers set it up. And so I suppose that's what brought you to looking for solutions outside of Washington? Yeah, I decided to study all the groups in America who were bridging across the divide. And, you know, 40, 60 of them are now in an organization that we built called the BridgeAlliance.us. So if, if people want to find out what 60 of those organizations are, just go to BridgeAlliance.us and you'll find 60 groups across the country who are all bridging the divide in their own way. And what I did was studying them. I said, what, what are these folks doing that's different than what our politicians are doing? And I saw three themes that they're three ways of being a patriotic citizen that they're doing that our leaders aren't doing. The first is they're learning. They enter a situation not saying I'm going to persuade these you know, jerks on the other side that I'm right. They enter the situation saying, what can I learn and how can we come up with a new idea? So they're interested in learning, number one. Number two, they actually care about relationship. They care about the relationship between Democrats and Republicans. And they know that whoever wins on election day, on the day after the election, they're going to have to work together. And how they work together determines the quality of life in America, just like how a father and mother work together determines the quality of life in their, in their house. It's the same basic dynamic. So relationship matters was the second thing. And third was problem solving, that because they were interested in learning, because they were interested in the relationship, they actually had a capacity to solve problems and not just shouted each other about guns or shouted each other about immigration or shouted each other about the economy, but to sit down and say, we've got a problem. How do we fix it? I think that's something that happens in communities all across Colorado all the time, because when you have a problem in your community, you want it fixed. That is Mark Gerzon of Boulder, president of the Mediators Foundation. His most recent book is The Reunited States of America, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. You heard an excerpt of our conversation from January. Listen to the whole thing at CPRnews.org. 
A director dedicated to the creation of new plays in Denver is leaving the Denver Center. For 12 years, Kent Thompson has served as producing artistic director. In that time, he launched the Colorado New Play Summit. Playwrights around the country compete to be a part of it. This year's summit is underway and runs through Sunday. Thompson is with me live from the Denver Center's rehearsal space, and welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Ryan. It's great to be here. You launched the Colorado New Play Summit in 2006. It runs for two weekends every February. Why do you think it's important for theaters not just to perform new work, but to help develop it? Well, I think it's really important that we give the storytellers of today and provide different windows on the world for our audiences that are entertaining and relevant and also what's their view of what's going on in the world, not just today, but over time. I also think that the dedication to classics and the newest of the new is a really interesting combination. But for me, it's about, you know, we want theater to thrive moving forward, and I have a secret goal behind it all, which is really, you know, my big, hairy, audacious goal, which is I want a, my grandchildren to be forced to read these plays in high school because <laughs> they've joined the American canon. <laughs> but re- relevance is, sounds like a real priority for when you're choosing or commissioning works. Yeah, it is. And I think that there's, uh, you know, the artist is always trying to tell a story that reveals something new, their view of the world, a particular aspect. So that's why it's really important to have women write, but also diversity with Latino, um, Latina, African-American. Now we have a Chinese-American story that's being workshopped this week. It just seems that that's a way, and I think people, when they hear a story on stage and witness it in real time, because it has such an emotional and kind of connection to each character, they can pull themselves back from what might be a contentious issue if they tried to encounter it in their own lives. But they also can see just the world anew. I mean, I think that these plays bring you a new sense of what the hope and possibility and the challenge and the struggle is uh, across our country and across the world. Yeah, give me an example of that in the current Colorado New Play Summit, where members of the public can see these kind of dressed-down readings, very early readings. Uh, What's an example of a play that you think might shed new light on a tough issue? Well, I think one of the comedies we're doing right now uh, by Eric Fleffinger. I've got I got to think about that name often. Fleffinger. I know him well, but uh, we're doing a comedy of his that is uh, about a, a very conservative family and a very liberal family in Michigan, Wisconsin, right on the state border, that end up. Uh, Uh, having a relationship together because one woman is carrying the other woman's baby. And it's very funny, but it's also about how people learn things about each other from each side of the, of the play. And uh, they learn, you know, they, they learn, for instance, that you may be pro choice. That doesn't mean you're pro abortion all the time, that that's the first thing you would do. And they learn something from the other side that, you know, faith does matter to people, and it's a deeper conviction, and it doesn't, it, it's not something that we can just condescend or criticize if we happen to not be a person of faith. It doesn't sound very funny. So what a challenge to make it's that It's incredibly, funny. 
Well, it's incredibly funny, and you can imagine how it would be with the assumptions that people make about each other. Yeah. And it's also based on a mistake that I'm not going to give away that puts pressure on them and all the things that they assume they're going to encounter. And so they automatically bring forth the standard caricature criticism of each other. And then over time, they begin to realize, oh, these are people on the other side. I may not agree with them on a lot of things, but I can still have a relationship and a friendship and a bond with them. I want to say that at last year's Colorado New Play Summit, you workshopped uh, a piece called Two Degrees about climate change. And that's actually now a fully produced show that's running this month. We're going to speak with the playwright, Tira Palmquist, tomorrow on the program. Uh, But it's, it's a testament to the fact that you want these plays workshopped in Denver to have a life, perhaps in Colorado, but certainly across the country, around the world. Yeah, I think that we've done, uh, I don't know how many world premieres, uh, 29 or something over my time here. We've done several, but we've had more than 70 professional productions all over the country from New York to Chicago to L.A. to San Francisco, just all over the country. And those take the name of Denver and the Denver Center with them everywhere they go. But I think it's, it's, less, uh, it's less about the fact that we want to make sure we've got a lot of productions in any particular place, then we want to make sure that we can help these playwrights advance their career and at the same time try to advance the American theater. And climate change is best told, in my mind, through a very human story with all of its flaws and foibles rather than a lecture Mm. or people yelling at each other on a panel. Uh, There is conflict, but there's also... Again, a lot of assumptions that people on the other side are opinionated and not informed rather than informed and opinionated. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Kent Thompson, who for 12 years has been producing artistic director at the Denver Center and made a lot of Colorado theater in that time. He is leaving uh, the Denver Center um, this season, and... I I do want to talk a bit about the transformation of the company in your time. Um, There used to be kind of semi-resident actors. Now you bring in actors more on a a show-by-show basis. Was there a time in in your 12 years where you were really most worried about the future of the company? Oh, yeah. I think that was true from the time I came here. But I think when it really happened was... Uh, after some of the economic turndown that we had in the recession. But also, you know, if you're dedicated to doing new plays, I believe what you're trying to do is really put the best actor you can get for a particular part and kind of the playwright's vision of the play on stage. And also, if we're more devoted to diversity in our programming, it's not always uh, a resident company. I think few theaters now have one, and we, we... we tried to keep it as long as we possibly could, but it was really a variety of factors. Uh, it, it broke my heart, and it's still, it's still at the time I, lo- I would love if we have that. But I do feel like we have a lot of uh, what I call frequent flyers, people that we work with frequently, both locally, regionally, and nationally. And um, that's really how it happened. It was not suddenly that 
I decided we didn't need a company. I just realized it was economically and artistically in some ways no longer possible. If you could change one thing in theater to make it more diverse, um, one contributor to that lack of diversity, what would it be? Well, I think it's about what the Denver Center is doing right now, which is we have to figure out how to have a conversation about what I would call equity, inclusion, and diversity, which is about how do we include people that are different voices. I mean, I'm very excited that we have an African-American woman of, of incredible artistry and very smart Nataki Garrett, who came in as the associate artistic director. And I think the commitment to having other voices at the table and other communities, the other thing is I think that if, if we're going to be genuine, we have to have the forum that your previous guest was talking about where we bring together communities. And I think theater is uniquely poised to do that so that we have conversations before and after the show. We extend this kind of engagement with the communities. They may not be the communities that are, you know, that are very surprising to us, to a traditional theater audience like the show The Christians or the show The Twelve. But it brings together people that can meet in a different way and talk about this and grow to know each other. Uh, and I think that's the key. It's a kind of authentic relationship with the many communities. Only way you do that is make sure you have represented also on your staff and company and programming and playwriting. You have told CPR News that it felt like the right time to move on from the Denver Center. But there has been some reporting by the Denver Weekly Westward casting doubt on the idea that you're leaving voluntarily and that you may have been asked to leave. Westward reported that one trustee of the Denver Center was so upset that he resigned over this. Uh, The board of trustees did release a statement and said that those accusations were inaccurate. In just about the last um, minute, less than that, Kent, can you shed some light on your departure for us? Well, my response is that I did resign, and uh, I'm leaving March 3rd, which is like shockingly in a few days to me. It's shocking because I've been here 12 years, and so it's always when you have to move. Uh, I'm really, it is true that I'm writing a book. I'm under contract. I've written five chapters. I want to get that done. I was having tremendous trouble doing that, and that's a book on professional directing in the U.K. and U.S., And then I'll see what's next. I've run these theaters for 28 years, big, big theaters. And for me, it's an opportunity to move on and find the next adventure. Perhaps we'll chat when that book is done. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Kent Thompson, producing artistic director, at least for a few more days of the Denver Center Theater Company. And uh, he leaves that job, as he's just said, there next month. The Colorado New Play Summit runs through Sunday. And as I said, I'll speak with a playwright tomorrow who workshopped a script at last year's summit. It is called Two Degrees and takes on climate change. Up next, a highly recognizable Denver building will soon get a makeover. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. He's not a household name, at least not in this country, but the Italian architect Gio Ponti left his mark on Colorado in the form of the Denver Art Museum, that almost castle-like building overlooking Civic Center Park. A new show at the museum tells the story of how Ponti came to design the six-story building, which opened in 1971. There are now plans to renovate it. I chatted with curator Darren Alfred at the museum. Darren, thanks for meeting us just outside the building. You're welcome. And what do you feel, what do you see when you look at it? It has a fortress-like quality to it. Some people in the past may have unfortunately referred to it as a, an Italian castle wrapped in aluminum foil. But I see a little bit more than that. There's sort of a a verticality to it that's really interesting given the mass of the building. And when you look at the top of it, it has this unique fenestration that gives uh, a sort of lightness to the structure. What is the outside of the building made of? Uh, There are approximately one million three-inch by six-inch glass tiles that were manufactured by Corning Glassworks uh, specifically for this project. And that's what gives it a sort of iridescent quality. Did you like this building when you first saw it? Yes, I did. I I fortunately was uh, somewhat aware of Ponte's work, maybe not the breadth of it. Um, So I was very excited about uh, coming to work here at the Denver Art Museum and to be able to work in such an iconic building of his. And you talk about breadth. Why don't we go inside and see the exhibition, which speaks to his career not just as an architect, but as a designer of many other things. Okay. Darren, we're looking at four plates, one with a simple blue dot in the center, another one with a kind of mid-mod pinwheel. He wasn't just an architect. He designed plates. He designed furniture, didn't he? Yeah, he was a a prolific architect slash designer. Um, He designed uh, not only buildings, but he designed furniture and decorative arts. Do you immediately recognize a Geoponte plate, say, and associate it with a Geoponte building? Yeah, there are visual ties between some of the motifs that he would use, not only in architecture, but in his decorative arts. Who was Geoponte? Well, Geoponte was probably one of the most original and um, inventive, uh, as I mentioned, architects and designers, in particular in Italy during the 20th century. He uh, had a career that spanned uh, almost five decades, from about the 1920s until uh, his death in 1979. What other buildings are notable on, on planet Earth that Geoponte designed? Uh, One of his most famous buildings was probably the Pirelli Tower. At the time that it was built uh, in Milan, it was the tallest building or skyscraper in Europe. How did he come to be chosen as the architect, or at least one of them, of the Denver Art Museum, the original building of the Denver Art Museum, which I think did not really have a home before that? No, it did not. Um, For many years, um, it uh, sort of existed in a variety of buildings and structures. There was a building on Capitol Hill, uh, a mansion called Chappelle House. And then in 1931, uh, there was room made in the new city and county building in Denver uh, for the museum. And then the idea was it needs a home. 
that Giopanti was not the first architectural choice. Is that right? Uh, he was not. Um, the museum trustees were really interested in bringing on board an architect of international reputation. Those names included I.M. Pei, uh, Lord Corbusier, the French architect, uh, Mies van der Rohe, Louis Kahn. I.M. Pei, who was very influential uh, in shaping the 16th Street Mall in Denver. Uh, but those guys said no, I guess. I.M. Pei wanted complete control of the project, whereas the museum trustees and James Sudler, who was the museum architect at that time, wanted someone who would be able to work with Sudler. And Giopanti was their guy. I understand this is Ponti's only building in the United States. Is that right, Darren? Uh, that's correct. He completed some buildings in South America, but this is his only um, constructed building in North America. And what vision did he bring to the table for the Denver Art Museum? Well, um, it was decided that Otto Bach, the director at the time, would design the galleries. Uh, James Sudler would be primarily responsible for the public spaces on the interior. Again, the museum's architect. And um, Gio Ponti was responsible for primarily the exterior of the building, but would also serve as a consultant on the entire project. And what did he want from the exterior? The, the thing, obviously, most people see. Well, he was most interested in creating a building that had no precedent in the United States and something that was uh, very unique and different from anything else that existed at that time. I think he achieved that, don't you? Oh, absolutely. There is really no other museum like it in the United States, and I can say that there's probably no other museum like it in the world. We found an article in the New York Times, published right after the building opened in 1971, and it starts... Some unkind souls have already referred to the building as an Italian castle wrapped in aluminum foil, something you made reference to earlier. Also, a campy set for the production of Hamlet. Clearly, the building was controversial from the start. Yes, it was very controversial. There were people that loved it, and there were people that hated it. I think Denver, as a as a community, was thrilled to see the building happen. I think the museum was very excited about this idea that an international architect of reputation um, really sort of put the museum on the international stage with a building like this. Denver was probably one of the first regional cities uh, to use architecture to advertise the museum, not just nationally, but also internationally. The idea that it wasn't just about what was contained within a museum, but that the building itself could scream, hey, come visit. Yeah, it was aspirational for the city and for the museum. What I hear in that is that Denver at the time might have been wanting to get rid of a a cow town image and raise its profile. I wonder if we might walk over to plans for the building's sprucing up, uh, renovation, and uh, a bit of an expansion, and just have you tell us what's in store for it. Sure. All right, we're looking at this model of what will become of the the Ponte building uh, at the Denver Art Museum. And Darren Alfred, uh, what, what changes are in store? Well, there's a a significant new welcome center that's really meant to tie the campus together. And you can see it's sort of this oval shape, and it's inspired by an original vision of Geopontes, and that was this sort of oval-shaped 300-seat auditorium that was originally to be located just off of the main entrance. I'll say that there are two primary gallery spaces for the Denver Art Museum. They're separated by a street, and so this is a way of of unifying those. Is that what I hear you saying? 
Yes, uh, the North Building, which was designed by Gio Ponti and completed in 1971, and then Daniel um Hamilton Building, which was completed in 2006. Any other changes in store? Actually, another vision of Ponte's that um, was not built was sort of a, a, a semi-enclosed penthouse on the roof of one of the, the two towers of the original building. Some version of that project will move forward. Where you can actually feel like you're a bit on the outside at the top floor. Yes, absolutely. I think the top floor has probably the most amazing views of not only the city, but of the front range. And, um, you know, in Ponte's original design, a lot of the windows and the cutouts on the facade of the building were meant to frame these views. It makes me wonder if it might become a permanent home to some of Ponte's decorative arts, his plates, uh, furniture, something like that. Yeah, I'm really excited about the opportunity to expand the architecture, design, and graphics galleries in the new North Building. On the second floor, we've proposed adding about 8,000 additional square feet of space to display um, our modern and contemporary design collection, and that includes a number of significant designs, um, as you mentioned, furniture, uh, silverware, plates, and other works by Gio Ponti. His works, large and small. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Darren Alfred is the Denver Art Museum's Associate Curator of Architecture, Design, and Graphics. The exhibition Then, Now, Next, Evolution of an Architectural Icon about Gio Ponti runs through August 31st. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.